0: That polio has there's resurgence there, and and other easily preventable diseases have been resurging. You know, with unrest, wars, you know, refugees, vaccine resistance, all these different kinds of things. So it seems like an appropriate time to talk about a topic like this, and um, and about the only disease that has ever been wiped off the face of the earth. And so, we'll start out with uh, just giving you some behind the scenes, we're gonna take a behind the scenes look, but I'm going to, um, I'm gonna give you a little prologue here. So, I'm sitting in the back seat of the embassy car being driven to the relative safety of our embassy residents. My anxious gaze is settled on the American flag fluttering from the car's flagstaff. And as I hug my two young children, I ask myself, what's happened this time? And then that other question, what on earth am I doing here? But I did know what we were doing there because just a year earlier I'd been in the back seat of another vehicle, the smallpox truck, and had my first close-up encounter with a smallpox victim. I'd always wanted to go to Africa. My father was a minister and returning missionaries would wind up always staying in our home and I just... Loved hearing all the stories and seeing their film strips. And remember film strips? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I had this dream in my diary when I was 10 years old. I, I had it documented that I, I had this dream. I would go to Africa, live in a jungle hut, and do good things. Let other Oklahoma girls go to Dallas. I wanted to go to Africa. <laughs> But, you know, Africa is not a country, mm-hmm. you know that, it's a continent. So, as a little prologue here, I followed my husband first to a country that was always in the news, and then to one that should have been. The first, Nigeria, larger than the state of Texas. It was embroiled in a broiler, the Civil War, the nigeria Biafra War. If others hadn't cared about Africans killing Africans, they did care about starving the offering babies. Images sped around the globe. The powerful chose sides. The world watched and wept. Our second assignment, Equatorial Guinea, a tiny dot on the globe. It was in the vise of a bloodthirsty dictator no reports escaped its borders. A blanket of fear muffled its screams. The powerful chose silence. The world didn't watch, didn't weep, Didn't even know the place existed. I kept cryptic notes and hid them in the soft drawer. <laughs> we'll get back to that day, that night in the uh, embassy later. So, let's look at some of, uh, a few statistics about, uh, you wouldn't believe how many times people say smallpox, uh, so that's kind of like really bad chicken chickenpox, right? Well, hardly. <laughs> um, it dates back at least to the time of Ramsey V and no one knows how far back beyond that. The origin is lost somewhere in prehistory, but um, lesions were identified on the mummy of, of Ramses V. And besides the, the many decades uh, and centuries when it dethroned dynasties and enthroned others, let's just, uh, and killed at a terrifying rate it killed on average three of every 10 people who were infected. Some parts of the world, it might be 50% who would die. In other parts, it might be more like 15, 20%, depending on other factors, nutrition and sanitation and so on, and um, and other diseases. But let's just look just at the 20th century death rate, the uh, the number of deaths in the 20th century. Oh, I forgot, I think this will work. Okay, and these are gross estimates. Uh, you find, find widely varying estimates, especially in World War II. Uh, <clears throat> but these are um, kind of center of the road uh, death uh, instances that I found. So you look at those deaths in the 20th century from all of these wars and genocides and revolutions and the 1918 flu pandemic, and they equal less than half those killed by smallpox in the 20th century up until it was eradicated, the last case being diagnosed in 1977. Um, Have you ever seen a case of smallpox? Or somebody scarred by smallpox. Okay, so that slide is mainly a reminder to me to forewarn you. I'm going to show you a few pictures. This is, this is the uh, WHO identification card that they would take everywhere, go into marketplaces and up and down the road. Have you seen anyone who looks like this? Have you seen anyone who looks like this? and sometimes rewards were offered for someone helping them find a case of smallpox. This is a mild early case, Uh, not even a moderate case. This is more like a moderate case of smallpox. And these pustules uh, that, that form are not just on the outside of the body, they're also on the internal organs. They're under the eyelid. They're in every orifice. And, and what about the survivors? Survivors were many, to uh, here again, wide variation on the numbers, but an average, about 30% were blinded in many cases, and men Thirty years, my husband hadn't heard about the concept of life-work balance. So I heard about diseases all the time. (laughs) Sometimes breakfast, lunch, and dinner topic in our home might be uh, uh, communicable diseases. So this is the picture I just I just showed you. Well, there was a solution, a solution to this problem. Uh, there had been a, a process of variolation before a vaccine came along, and that was taking live virus and injecting it into a well person to give them hopefully a mild case of smallpox. Unfortunately, at times, it became a severe case or even started a, an epidemic if, if the person hadn't been totally isolated. Um, Called variolation. That was an early form of inoculation. And in China, for hundreds of years, they had taken the scabs. After these pustules dry up, mm-hmm. then they scab over, the mm-hmm. scabs fall off. And they would take the scabs and grind them to powder and blow them up the nostrils of a well person mm-hmm. uh, to inoculate them. Mm-hmm. In Turkey and in West Africa, Withdrawing it from a pestle and scratching the arm of that person. If any of you saw the series John Adams, Mm -hmm. uh, you might remember that Abigail Adams it it showed her having children buried, inoculated with that, and and they get very ill and suffer for several days. um, uh, But the death rates and, and some people did die from it but much better odds than one in three or three in ten. so you had instead of from naturally acquired smallpox inoculation with the live virus would uh, death rates would be one or two people out of a hundred who might die from it. And then with the smallpox vaccine, once we had a vaccine, one or two in one million. This, this that was a statistic during the time of the smallpox campaign, um, which my husband was part of. So, um, so after the vaccine came along, and let me say, there is so much fascinating history about the development of all this. I spoke for two and a half hours well, they were on Monday for is lifelong mm-hmm. learning, and there was so much I had to leave out. That's just fascinating. Uh, so I'm sorry that you know i just <laughs> itching to tell you more things as we go along, but I have to restrain myself, or we won't get uh, through the story. So um, the when the uh, campaign began. The, uh, the goal was smallpox, target zero. Not one or two cases left in the world, not one case left in the world. It had to be zero, uh, or we would never, it wouldn't have been eradicated. And that says Thomas Jefferson? I'm sorry. Is that Thomas Jefferson? Uh, Thomas Jefferson's prediction, <laughs> and when Dr. Edward Jenner, an English physician, developed the vaccine, the, the very first vaccine in the world from cowpox because he had noticed, and he was not the first person to, to, to think of this idea, but milkmaids did not get smallpox because many of them had gotten cowpox from the udders of cows. So um, after he developed this vaccine, he knew that Jefferson was kind of an amateur scientist and he sent Jefferson some of the vaccine to, and asked him to try it. And he vaccinated about 250 people of his household. Um, and, and the word uh, vaca
1: is the root of vaccine, huh? For cow. The mm-hmm. word vaca for cow is the root of vaccine.
0: Yes, yes. yes. And like who makes a Xerox, you know, that, <laughs> that it tends to be used for others. So vaccine became, has now used for all of it, these types of things. So um, Jefferson sent Dr. Jenner a letter in 1803. Uh, the vaccine was developed mainly in 1796. And in 1803, Jefferson sent Jenner a letter and said, future generations will know by history only that the loathsome smallpox has existed and was by you extirpated. Well, two hundred years later we finally Finally, actually, made it happen. And uh, maybe maybe you've seen this little Mm -hmm. cartoon, which I love. (laughs) I guess you can all read that, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, the very first, uh, so it started out with the West and Central Africa program, and that was a five year goal. The overall goal was that smallpox would be eliminated from the face of the earth in 10 years and uh, we would first begin with the Western Central Africa area because that was the highest incidence in the world at that time. So uh, the orange area is Nigeria. The program area was all of the countries inside the heavy black line. Uh, One thing you can't really see here is the little island, well, it's not on there, the island, but... Here's Nigeria. We were first in the north here in Kano, Kano State was Carl's responsibility. And then we were transferred to Equatorial Guinea, which is this little chunk here and an island here and a tiny islet way out in the Atlantic. And... Um,
2: is that Principe and Sao Tome?
0: Principe and Sao Tome are in that same uh, volcanic chain. But there's we were on what was then Fernando Po, that island. It was now called Bioko Island. And then there's Prince K and Sao Tome, which were Portuguese colonies. And then Alabom is farther out still than the Equatorial Guinea. Mm-hmm. So um, there were many, many illustrious people that went and took part in <laughs> this program and here. Four of them right here. <laughs> so our daughter was 18 months old, our son was four when we left for West Africa. Um, and I'll show you these just because I love these pictures. <laughs> and just give you a sense of really how young our children were. Uh, the one on the left is uh, taken inside the Emir's Palace. Um, and this little boy was the emir's son. Now he himself is an emir. Ooh. And this was by our carport, and this man, Musa, is, was our watchman. Uh, some of the transportation, this was 1969. One of the um, smallpox posters and measles was included in our measles control measles was not a candidate for eradication of measles was uh, measles control was included in the program because the countries were really insistent on that because measles is a deadly child in west africa when my husband would be out in the field in the bush uh, as they approached a village of little patch of new small graves would have announced to them that measles had recently swept through and taken most of the children. Huge percentage of them. I'm going to share with you a little two-minute video clip of Carl and his teams, and uh, you'll see a demonstration uh, with the Pediget, the jet injector gun, which. Um, could, you could vaccinate 1,000 people an hour with it. And the, that was used during the mass campaign, uh, but then they began to use when they were uh, you know, vaccinating babies that had been born since the mass campaign and, and other mopping up kinds of things, or if they found, identified a new case or something, then they would, were using the bifurcated needle, for the mump puncture. Uh, and you'll see both in this, and um, only at the end will you see a little clip where people are going through the line fairly rapidly, mm-hmm. and you'll see that only men are going through. And that's because we were in northern Nigeria, which is Muslim, mm-hmm. and men and women could not go through together, so Carl had to structure everything so that the men went through, vaccination sites were chosen so that no one had to walk farther than eight kilometers to get vaccinated. And I've always wondered, when I, when I was writing the book and as I give talks, I wish I could still ask my husband, um, he passed away nine years ago now, um, wish I could ask him, so what, did, so what did they do? Did the men stash the women, hide them somewhere and go through? Or did they walk eight kilometers back
2: home to get the life after they got vaccinated? The I'm not sure how how most
0: of them did that. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love this music again, you will see a few. just triumph but and, and it, it is a great triumph. But I mean there are all kind of complications along the way and lots of political intrigue and, and so well, is Red
1: Crescent uh, active there? I'm sorry. Red Crescent, were they active there? It's just like the Muslim Red Cross? Probably not. You right? um, know
0: what? Yes. I had to stop and think about that for a minute. So um, the this picture kind of uh, has several of the barriers. One was remoteness of some of the areas. One was uh, sand, and these wonderful jet ejector guns were very finely tuned pieces of equipment, and they would get clogged with sand, and, and uh, you always had lots of them because a number of them would be down at any one time and had to be serviced. Uh, Also, nomadism, you know, uh, that people would, uh, uh, you know, on the move. And so when you've got a highly mobile population, um, that's that's a challenge too. Uh, And this picture is just a Show you some of the other complications. CDC had to negotiate separate agreements with every single country. Well, on this side of that pole is Nigeria, English speaking, facilities based healthcare systems. Uh, of course, cultural differences. On the other side of that pole, this is the national boundary between Nigeria and Niger. On the other side of that pole is a French speaking country. And uh, their health system was based more on they had a lot of mobile units, which was very you know that meshed very well with what the campaign had to do. But uh, it's just it's just kind of symbolic of of, you know so much different, so different uh, cultures. And of course, the virus didn't didn't know about this boundary. And within Nigeria itself, uh, northern Nigeria was Muslim. Southern Nigeria was uh, in parts of, of the uh, southwest. You had mainly the Yoruba tribe. This is a gross oversimplification, because Nigeria had about 300 tribal groups <laughs> and over 500 languages and dialects. Uh, but these are the principal ones. And that had originally been northern, uh, two different countries, northern Nigeria and southern Nigeria. And then the British stapled the two together. And um, the Igbo, down in the southeast, were predominantly Christian, uh, and also very ambitious and really valued education. And they, they got themselves very educated. And once the two parts were put together in one country, They migrated all over the country and held responsible jobs in uh, uh, civil service and in uh, business, many of them owned businesses, and so um, that was, then that became uh, a huge flashpoint. Then three years before we arrived was the, uh, there were massacres all across the north, of the Hausa and Balani massacring the Igbo. And in this horizon, horizon ground, there's a, like, a, about a 10-acre mass grave. The bodies of many thousands of Igbo have been slaughtered. Um, and this was one of the final sparks that detonated the nigeria biafra war. So wars were also a huge factor in in the ten years that the campaign was in operation. Uh, These trucks, (laughs) they had uh, to—I have another slide with about eight or ten of them, I I should put them together. Uh, Like I said, they weren't compatible at all. They were too wide, too heavy, too everything for the environment, but we couldn't get permission to, uh, to get land rovers because we had to buy American. Um, this is, um, you can't really tell from this picture, but inside the walls of the old city, almost all the women in there were in purdah meaning they were not to be seen by any man outside their immediate family. So that was a, a big issue. Carl could not go behind those <clears throat> walls. Neither could his vaccination teams, who were all men. And so I spent three days that I will never, ever forget. He had to train me when they were doing assessment, you know, choose a, a, a starting point and follow the statistical grid uh, going a certain direction and looking at all arms to assess the success of the, or the, the coverage of the mass vaccination campaign. So I spent three days with some women from the local health department behind these walls and saw a slice of life that nobody in the outside world ever saw. Um, But So these kinds of things were other hurdles for the campaign. And then there were the witch doctors and the fetishers. This is the Yoruba goddess, smallpox, smallpox god. And they believed that (coughs) Um, that this God could could cure smallpox, but also cause smallpox if if it was angry with people. And um, so, most of the disinformation, we hear a lot about that, right? Um, Came from the witch doctors, um, and they they would threaten people. If if they got vaccinated, they were gonna spread uh, smallpox and create an epidemic well, so those are some of the typical barriers for many of the countries. We had a rather unique experience and we were transferred from the Sahel to the rainforest. Um, Equatorial getting, now this is early post-colonial times, Nigeria had been independent only 10 years when we were there. Equatorial Guinea had been independent only 18 months. And they, um, um, they, so they were being brought into the program. And CDC needed someone who was already in West Africa and already experienced in the program who could go there on short order, someone who spoke Spanish. At least passively. <laughs> the uh, Equatorial Guinea was Spain's only colony in Sub-Saharan Africa, and so they had been independent just the 18 months. The State Department sent us these this packet of information after Carl agreed to go, or maybe before Carl agreed to go. Beautiful! Oh my goodness! Look, Carl, this just looks like a Hollywood <laughs> set. It's just a tropical island paradise. This is the corner. Our house is behind this red hedge here. Uh, Picture taken from the corner. We live this little block from the rainforest and three blocks from the harbor. It's just this little strip between rainforest and ocean and the sea. And uh, so it was really exciting. And and the brochure said, um, the brochure talked about coastal waters teeming with fish and prawns. Well, I knew what I was going to order a lot of fish that there. <clears throat> and, uh, of course, the beauty of the place and the uh, warm and friendly people. So I was really looking forward to that. Well, when Spain called the first election, and when they were being granted independence. This man, Francisco Macias Nguema, who nobody thought could possibly win the election, did win. And six months after he was inaugurated, he began killing off people. He started out killing all the people who had run against him in the election, and (laughs) then their families, and their tribal chiefs, who anybody who he felt could have some influence might steal any of his power in some way, killing their families. Sometimes he burned whole villages of anybody who he felt had insulted him. Um, and so there was, um, he used uh, several uh, different, through three different groups to terrorize his people. There was the, uh, the, the local police, and if you were lucky, they might just slap you around or, or beat you, or they might take you to the, uh, the jail uh, there. Then there was the Juventud, the youth movement, the Juventud and March Up on Macias, the uh, youth in March with, uh, with Macias. And they were ranged from ages 8 to 30. But even the eight-year-olds were armed and given some military training. Um, and they, if you and encountered them on the sidewalk and they wanted some money, they just uh, take it from you. And, and at the drop of a hat, they, they would beat people up. And then the third thing was the Guardia, the Guardia Nacional, the National Guard. And And they leaned more toward leading you to a fault with their rifle butts and hauling you off, dragging you off to Black Beach Prison, one of the worst prisons in the world, which I later found out was half a mile from our house. And to put that in perspective, this capital city, capital of Equatorial Guinea, the Santa Isabel, then it's now called Malabo. It was only about a one square mile little town, but um, it was strategically located. Remember that map, and all those other countries found out, band out around it. So nine embassies and diplomatic missions jostled for influence and elbow room in that little that little country. It was a perfect place to do spying. Listening to, uh, getting your intelligence, and it was like a, a microcosm of the world. We knew, we saw when the Russians were speaking to the Chinese and when they weren't speaking to each other, and um, so it was, it was really something. So the streets had been pretty well emptied by fear any other place in Africa the streets would just be teeming with life life was lived outside in Africa and, and there would be tons of people tons of vehicles, bicycle bells you know, drums singing, uh, all kinds of, of sounds of life and this um, but the, it was just silent So silent, so few people on the streets because of of fear, and they would, um, so what about those warm and friendly people? Mm -hmm. You know how many warm and friendly, how many people I met, local people? Not a single one, Mm -hmm. because the dictator had decreed that no local, could have any contact with a foreigner. So one night, that even extended to the doctor, one night we had an emergency. I, my husband, as usual, was over on the mainland, totally out of communication, and um, my son was screaming with abdominal pain in the middle of the night. And the one doctor who had been murdered um, was you know, afraid to... Account. He, he would have risked his own life if he had agreed to, to see us. So, this picture is kind of remarkable because here's Carl with local people. The charge d'affaires, and this was the smallest U.S. embassy in the world, and Carl became half of the U.S. embassy. <laughs> but the charge d'affaires had to negotiate with the dictator to allow Carl to even talk to his vaccination teams. Uh, there wouldn't even have been a program if, because um, uh, this happened over and over. He had, uh, had killed off so many people that the, um, um, you know, like anybody with any education and had driven all the Spanish teachers and nurses and doctors and so on out of the country. So the country was falling apart. So he had requested advisors from the United Nations. So these people would come in and then they wouldn't be allowed to talk to anybody. Like the the man who came in, uh, the expert in agriculture, was never allowed to visit a farm (laughs) and wasn't allowed to talk to anybody connected with agriculture. And after sitting at an empty desk for several weeks, he finally gave up and left the country. So this picture is kind of a remarkable, uh, remarkable thing here. Um, uh, this is embassy seal, just to remind me to tell about the embassy. Oh, and I didn't tell you about the fish and prawns. So. I didn't get any fish or prawns either, except some that were imported, because the dictator had burned all the boats. There was no more fishing industry because people were fleeing his brutal rule. And um, so all this fishing fleet uh, was destroyed to keep people from fleeing the island. They had no way to leave. <coughs> I'm not gonna spoil the. Uh, you've read the book, okay? <laughs> but this little bow and arrow that our son, by then he was six, and he carved this from a bent twig and a rubber band. I still have it. I said that rubber band is really good, on now. But this little bow and arrow wound up creating an almost international incident and led to event, events transpired such that it was deemed no longer safe for the children when need to be in Equatorial Guinea. And we were evacuated out to Cameroon to live there for four months while Carl finished up his work in, in uh, Equatorial Guinea. Um, so, just to circle back around to smallpox. Carl later was uh, uh, out in Bangladesh when they were finishing off smallpox. And so I'm gonna show you a few of the last cases of smallpox in the world, just a couple of them. This was uh, an isolation hospital that Carl set up in uh, the part of Bangladesh where he was working. A lot of times they would Think, oh, they just about had the last case, it's almost gone, and then a flood would happen, or government would pull those acres of slums and send people scurrying out anywhere but here. You know, jump on the tops of trains and everything. But they finally did get it done. And the last case of uh, the last case of naturally acquired variola major was in, 19, in October of 1975 that was diagnosed. A little eight-year-old girl identified this little three-year-old and reported it and she received a close amounted to $2.50 reward for identifying this little girl it was on a remote island in Bangladesh. That was the last case of Ariella Major. And in October of 77, the last case of variola minor was diagnosed. It was a hospital cook, the young guy. And and that was the last case. For two more years, they sent volunteers and staff everywhere, everywhere. Have you seen anyone who looks like this? Have you seen anyone who looks like this? Until they felt, the WHO felt, after two and a half more years, felt safe to declare the world Smallpox-free, so it was um, an incredible thing, and um, I keep forgetting I have a remote, <laughs> a remote that works. So, and I just share this uh, note that was they wrote my husband. I don't know how well you can read it. Farewell to Mr. Blozer, renowned philanthropist who has come over Bangladesh to help the sick and distressed individuals who are at the 11th hour due to diseases. Dear Sir, coming from overseas to help the helpless and distressed people, you have made an adventure to eradicate this diseases from this country. We will never forget you and your art of treatment to us. Long leave you, wish you better prospect, later life. And uh, that is framed and on my wall, that's, if I ever have a fire, that's what I will grab. So this 10-year target, amazingly, it was missed by only um, nine months and 26 days. The West Africa goal of the um, five years, they completed that in three and a half years and $19 million under budget, which was... uh, a source of great pride. Um, oh, I moved that slide. So, what now? And um, so, before I, I, I want to, before I close, I want to share a story with you. Um, just um, Many times, people ask, you know, what kept you going, especially after, like being in the embassy car in the middle of the night, you know, with violence going on in the streets and we're being shoveled to safety. And then the children and I are evacuated and all of this. And I think the story will show you why we just kept going. Um, but oftentimes, people ask me you when know, I'm interviewed on radio or, or I speak, what do you want people to do after reading your book or hearing you speak, uh, telling your story. And I just think, you know, I mean, this kind of thing is gives you such joy. I'll finally get into the joy here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, There's nothing more joy-producing, I think, than helping somebody else and changing somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And The needs out there are so vast, just vast, and you can, I remember when my daughter was at Westmont, she said, and she gets, she just gets so emotionally touched with all the different pleas for help for a different, this cause or that cause, and the chapel, you know. And and she just, you know, it's overwhelming. It, It is, it can just drive you nuts, thinking of all the different ways but I would just say, you know, check out, look within yourself, and okay, what are your resources? What are your talents? And then pick one thing, pick, you know, one one cause, and whether it's financial contribution or uh, something that you can do in a volunteer capacity, or 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 your work, you know, if you're still. I'm still trying to go back to Africa. I don't know about you, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, but just think of you know what what you might be able to do to, to help help somebody else, mm-hmm. and um, and take care of, um one talk I give is packing your your mental and emotional bags for work in the developing world because there are so many things prepared for. We were prepared for yellow fever and you know malaria all (coughs) we were prepared with all kinds of information. And being the daughter of a minister, I didn't think I had any spiritual challenges about but you know we we said, well if we don't find other Christians to worship with we'll worship at our home. But without a church family mm-hmm. to keep you fed, um, you know, gradually kind of let God out of the future just when we were about to need him most in editorial Guinea And um, so, you know, there are various things you need to know and prepare for when you're when you're uh, going into a field like that. But um, Um, So, fortunately, thanks to God's love and mercy, we came back to our roots. Um, But, um, uh, so, so think about something that that you might, you might do. I'm going to share a story with you, and then we'll uh, take some questions. Meningi urged our truck over washboard roads and tow tracks as we pressed north in the direction of the Sahara. In the front seat with his driver, my husband leaned forward searching the horizon. At the last mud-walled village, he learned that a group of nomads was camped nearer Nigeria's border with Niger, and he had to find them before they moved on. With no new case of smallpox reported in his area for the last several weeks, this is a high-risk period when people could easily let down their guard. If a new case was found, everything had to happen fast. Quarantining, isolation, contact tracing, vaccinating, and a race against the virus. From the backseat of this double cap truck, I looked out through the fine dust at a ghostly landscape, punctuated here and there by 20-foot-high termite hills. <laughs> an occasional camel grazed on thornbush and stunted acacia. Suddenly the truck shuddered to itself. A couple of cows had decided to lie down on the road and take a nap. <laughs> a little group of people emerged from, from the bush and ran toward our truck. Our truck, ditty rock And then the high-pitched uvulation that long High-pitched trilling sound that underscores intense emotion. Rocketdy! May you live long <laughs> in the house of language. <laughs> it was a common response to our white Dodge power bucket with the smallpox signed on the side and the USA insignia. One woman stationed herself next to my window. She might have been beautiful for smallpox. Deep pitted scars blanketed her face. And and her eyelids, eyelids were framed by pop marks. Or eyelashes should have been. I recoiled inside and fought the wave of nausea. I knew a lot about smallpox. I knew a lot about viruses. I knew that when a virus finishes using One cell, one person, one host, leaving it damaged or dead, it has to quickly find another and another and another to keep making copies of itself. That's what a virus has to do. And I knew a lot about smallpox. I knew that there was no treatment and no cure, and that it had changed the course of history many times. I knew a lot about smallpox. This time I didn't know. that she knew the smell of smallpox. You could sense it from yards away, the smell of decaying flesh like that of a dead animal. She knew the stealth of smallpox, for after she seemed recovered from initial flu-like symptoms, the virus suddenly leapt from hiding, planted sores in her mouth and throat, and then raced across her forehead then the rest of her face and then down her body to the palms of her hands, soles of her feet. It persisted and persisted until it filled the hideous sores with fluid. She knew the aloneness of the isolation hut and in that dark space knew hunger when sores in her mouth and throat made it too painful to swallow. She knew the agony of unseen lesions on internal organs and a bedding brushed against pustules beginning to break down. And then, after defying the odds and surviving smallpox, she would have known emotional isolation as friends and family, even her husband, could hardly bear to look at her. Yes, this woman knew smallpox. She knew that before the big white trucks came with with her fellow Nigerians bringing the vaccine, that a third of her family infected with smallpox had died, and that many who survived were left blinded and disfigured. As well as she knew anything, she knew that smallpox could have taken this little boy. I looked down, there was a little toddler playing at her feet. She picked him up, his skin smooth as silk, and proudly held him out to show me. run it, Ronky Diddy. We were engaged in an all-out war to annihilate small parts. It had a long, the battle had a long, interesting history, this woman mm-hmm. didn't know. She didn't know anything about the development of the vaccine or the PetaJet, or that the program had just given its 100 million vaccination across the border in each year. But she knew we campaigned against smallpox in a way that Carl and I never could. She knew that because the big white trucks came, this little boy had been spared that his cousins had also survived, and that her family was still able to raise the cattle and sell the milk. As the last of the cows ambled into the sparse scrub. Many shifted gears and we were underway. I didn't try to hold back the tears. I'd had my first close-up look at small smallpox. The woman and her neighbors, arms still held high, watched our truck for a long time, not yet knowing that smallpox had visited their huts for the last time.
2: (laughs) Thanks for telling us that story, because I have read your book, and one thing I
1: think of, I read it in 2021 during the pandemic, Uh and um, one thing that really struck me was how individualized it was. You talk talk about your journey that you just told us about, you're pursuing a a rumor of smallpox in a nomadic group, and uh, that's, I think, how it had to happen. You know, you heard about it, you went to it, it was hard, and you found those people, and you, convince them. And I think it's those people on the edges and on the fringes
0: that you had to really, probably really find in order to eradicate it. Right, yeah. And when Carl was in Bangladesh, you know, that was when he talked about, remote villages, people had no idea what was happening, you know, um, and they were scared.
2: Questions? I just have a
0: comment. I was born in 1951 and I remember getting a vaccination. Uh And my family doctor, who was a wonderful man, asked me what kind of scar did I want? Did I want a Mickey Mouse or a Donald Duck?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I got a a Mickey Mouse. and, and, they they
0: read read, read, and it, it was in school. Next kid, yeah. And it was like that fast. And yeah. nobody said, oh, I don't know if I'm or. a vaccination or right. just, and nobody, I don't know if we got asked. No. <laughs> no, everybody no. Did <laughs> well, and you know, the thing is, I think if, if COVID was visible and uh-huh. people looked like they looked for smallpox, mm-hmm. It would be a and I
1: think the ball Yeah, that's, I was thinking the same. Yeah. What's the difference? How about measles? Um, I, every now and then you hear about outbreaks of measles and
2: right. cough. Um, yeah, measles seems really, to be visible, but I guess there's just still resistance.
0: It is visible, but it doesn't leave, I mean, it's, it doesn't leave people just disfigured, mis- you know. Uh, I was just saying, if if COVID was visible like smallpox was, it would be a whole different story. You know, measles is visible while it's active, but then when it goes away, it doesn't generally leave people scarred. And uh, And how smart of that! And how smart of that disease (laughs) to make it a disease that is invisible. (laughs) <laughs> you know, isn't that smart Diseases disease right. just go in and
2: right. destroy
1: you, and you don't feel, you don't see anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I think and is relevant for now, as far as vaccination goes, is people don't know how bad the diseases were. Like, my mother is 87, she had a weeping cough twice, and, you know, she hears people say, oh, you know, I don't want that. It's just a, it's a, it's a cough, and she says, oh, no. Yeah. It was horrible and life altering, and, life-altering. and right. she was, fit, you know, and nobody ever has to see that
0: anymore. Right? Yeah, you're exactly right. That there's so many of these things that have been almost gone mm-hmm. or, or reduced to such low incidence that mm-hmm. and people haven't experienced them. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't realize measles can leave people dead mm-hmm. And um, I'm a retired speech language pathologist. Mm-hmm. I know, when we were studying death, you know that uh, measles was one of the um, one of the things that could could cause
2: Mm -hmm. death. But uh, and other other things, measles is not just some totally innocuous Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Does it mutate quite a bit? Measles. Measles mutates quite a bit.
0: I am not someone who can answer that question. Uh, That's
1: part of the trouble is trying to follow. Just like the
2: flu, it always means eating.
0: Yes, right, yeah. And, and COVID certainly. Smallpox, you know, smallpox was considered a candidate for eradication because of several factors. The virus was pretty stable. Um, it has been around for Eons, scientists knew they knew smallpox, the smallpox virus. The um, there was no animal vector. It was only human to human transmission. So once you stopped human to human transmission, that virus had nowhere to hide. Um, Also, you know the vaccine was different. It was stable. We in the 50s they developed deep stable. different virus, a different disease, a different vaccine, and a different society, um, but... Uh, where would you want to go back
2: to Africa now?
0: Why? Remember where? To, oh, where? Uh, I'm looking at various uh, places. I, I'd like to go back kind of to the neighborhood, general neighborhood, not the equatorial Guinea. It's still a rural place. Mm-hmm and uh, not in Nigeria right now either. There's so much talk about that. Um, but right before the pandemic, I had checked with the Peace Corps and asked them what their upper age limit was. <laughs> they said they didn't have one. The oldest person had gone with him when 86. So I said, can't one." <laughs> and then the pandemic hit. Yeah. Uh, right now I'm, uh, I was going to to go to the African uh, African Christian Hospital Conference in Texas uh, back in January, and there was a real resurgence of COVID and the flu and RSV right then. And I just decided it wasn't the smartest thing to do, but I was able to talk with the um, man who had been executive director and. Uh, He's taken many groups of volunteers for shorter term mm-hmm. kinds of things, and so I'm kind of working on mm-hmm. trying to identify something I could go and do for not for probably two years is not the smartest thing for me to commit mm-hmm. to at my age, but uh, maybe a two or three month volunteer thing, and then if it went well, maybe, you know, hopefully one life I could extend. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, We'll see. Yeah, maybe. I was really struck
1: in your senior lunch talk when you talked about how everyone got involved in this campaign because if one person had smallpox, then that means people, you know, in the U.S. that have smallpox. If one person had smallpox in the corner around the globe, that affected everyone. I'm like, yeah. you know, the MLK quote. Well, like, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm-hmm. Or So this was, like, such a perfect example of that. Of, we eradicated smallpox, which is insane, but there was also an element of, because it, there was an ownership of the problem, Yeah. because, like, one case affected the globe. Yeah. And, and I wish sometimes we thought about other problems like that, because they,
2: exactly. you know. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So yeah, it was, you know, it was a, a time when, when all the nations knew that if everyone didn't join hands, we had no hope of the human versus micro you know, winning that war. Mm-hmm. And also the rich nations knew that if they didn't vaccinate the poorer nations, mm-hmm. none of us were safe. If you just looked at it from a selfish standpoint. Um, and and I always liken that to you know, not vaccinating or wanting to spend the money or whatever for the poorest nations mm-hmm. is like building a high security wall mm-hmm. around yeah. your own property with razor wire on top and electrifying it and leaving the gate wide open. Yeah. It's, um, uh, you know, I don't know. We can't seem to get that mentality. It's just a yeah.
2: different society.